the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Josh Pick is the Chief Investment Advisor with Aptus Wealth Management, a state-registered investment advisory firm. This program is sponsored by Aptus Wealth Management. Exposure to ideas and financial vehicles discussed should not be considered investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell financial vehicles. This information should not be considered tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult with professionals to see if any ideas expressed would fit their specific situation. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Securities can fluctuate and when redeemed may be more or less than when originally invested. Welcome to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. Every week, Josh will teach you ways to help manage, risk, and protect your retirement income in the new economy. The primary focus at Aptus Wealth is to provide flexible planning strategies that can efficiently achieve your long-term retirement goals. Happy New Year, everyone. Before we get started, just a reminder to tune into 98.9 The Answer to hear Josh join Bruce Hooley every Monday at 6 p.m. for Money Mondays. And you can always listen on your own to the podcast at aptuswealth.com. Let's get into it. Well, Josh, first, I'm sure you've made some New Year's resolutions. Do you want to share? I don't make resolutions. I do make goals. Uh, and I every year, and I have forever, I set goals for first, second, third, fourth quarter. I do them every quarter. So I do have goals for the first quarter. Um, they're not much unlike, I'm sure, everybody else's goals. But one I am going to do, which I've never done, Diane, is I'm going to work out in the morning. I don't know if you're a morning person. Oh, I am not. But I hate working out in the morning. But I figure if I work out in the morning, that means I can't stay up late. So it's probably, you know, habits make people. So five days a week, I'm working out in the morning, which is early, 6 a.m. That's Ooh, early for me, at least. Good for you. No, that's really early for and me. And I did it today. So I'm one for one. But Thanks. I got a long way to go. How about yourself? <laughs> Well, I am not getting up earlier, but working out definitely. I, I do that pretty regularly, but uh, even more consistent, I guess. And then, yeah. Uh, well, so what are your your first quarter goals? Is it in terms of income? Uh, there's Is a it... lot of them. Yeah. I, well, I, I break them down into uh, personal health goals. Um, so, you know, what I'm going to eat, when I'm going to work out. And I work out all the time. It's just uh, something to kind of change it up, work out in the morning. Um, and then I'll have a, uh, some family, uh, slash, you know, purpose goals and then some business goals and my business goals, you know, uh, things like, uh, streamline processes, you know, stuff that nobody wants to hear about, very boring stuff. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, my, my purpose filled goals are getting a little bit more involved in charity and, you know, typical stuff that I'm sure everybody does, but I attach, and this is important, I think for everybody listening when it comes to, financial goals because everybody asks me you know in the in the new year what should i do if i'm going to set a goal financially make sure they're attainable and make sure they build momentum so on my goals for example let's say one of my goals was i want to make sure that i go to church and i haven't been going for the last two months or whatever it is i wouldn't say i'm going to go to church every single sunday because that's an you know if you haven't gone in two or three months Every single Sunday might be a little aggressive. So say I'm going to go once a month, and then the next quarter you say you're going to go twice a month or whatever it is. Well, same thing with finance. Um, you know, I'm going to use my $600 stimulus check to pay off a credit card, or I'm going to uh, 
you know, start saving 50 bucks a month. Don't say I'm going to get my entire financial picture back on track, even though it's in disarray. And I'm going to uproot the apple cart and change everything about me. Make them small and attainable and stick to them. They will build momentum and it's easier to work off momentum than uh, really lofty goals followed by failure. So that's the way I set up my goals. I don't know how you do yours, Diane, but uh, they seem to work for me. And I think habits make people. So well, I like, that's why I do it. Yeah, I like you had mentioned uh, when we were talking off the air about rewarding yourself. I'm, I'm really big on that. But maybe that's why I'm in the trouble I'm in. But not to be so strict that you don't follow these goals. Absolutely. I mean, how many people, you know, I, I heard a joke uh, or maybe it was a Facebook post that says I'm going to open a new gym. It's going to be called uh, Resolutions for the first two weeks. We're a gym. And then for the time after that, we turn into a bar. Uh, because, you know, how many people, I mean, you say you work out all the time. How many people are there for the first two weeks, maybe a month? Oh, yeah. And then quite, go a on? quite a bit. In, in large in part, in my experience, at least with friends of mine that have been athletes in the past that just haven't been into working out, you know, they go back too hard and they hurt themselves. They end up with an injury and that derails them again. Well, the same thing can happen when it comes to finance. You know, like you said, reward yourself. So you get the $600 stimulus check. Maybe you take 200 bucks and blow it. And then the other $400 you apply to something. That's a very tangible, easy thing that builds momentum. And getting back to the workout analogy, I'm sure you feel this way. I know you're really big in exercise. If you go, even if your first day back, which I don't have a lot of time where I don't work out at all but your first day back people say i'm going to go in there and work out for an hour and a half that actually is discouraging because you realize for an hour and a half how out of shape you are and then the next day you're so sore the next week yeah yeah so go back for 20 minutes feel good about the fact that you got out of there you feel you feel pretty good about it and then the next day or you know two days later you add five minutes same thing with finance don't come into the new year saying that's it i'm done with all of my old ways i'm going to reinvent the wheel because you're not You might for a small period of time, but it will not be sustainable. So make subtle adjustments and stick to it for a quarter. And then at the end of that quarter, reset your goals and do it again. You'd be be amazed at how much you can accomplish if you do that. And and clearly, Diane, this is not, you know, new to, I'm not coming up with this. This is something that everybody knows, everybody can do, everybody's heard before. But make this year the time to do it and make your goals few. I have these three goals. I'm going to knock these out of the park for the next three months and go from there. Excellent. Excellent advice. So talk about changing things, changing our habits going into 2021. Let's talk about how retirement planning needs to change going into this year. Yeah, I think we have a lot of interesting things all converging at once. Uh, We have the longest bull run in the history of the stock market that is still going. We've reached the highest levels in the stock market in history. We have the lowest interest rates in the history of the U.S. economy. Um, We have a uh, very significant uh, polarizing change in the White House, or at least it looks like it's going to go through. And by polarizing, not just the election process, not just kind of the dumpster fire that was, in fact, the debates, but I'm talking more about there's a very significant difference between what each candidate believes is best for our country moving forward in the way of taxes, spending, et cetera. So I think looking into 2021, Not only do we have just perhaps we're due for a correction, but also what are we going to do with COVID moving forward? Will we have another shutdown and what impact will that have on the economy? So I think we have to play things a little bit tighter to the vest today than we have in the past. And I I think what ultimately people have been doing is operating out of fear. And that fear doesn't necessarily mean that they're sitting all in cash. Sometimes fear drives us to do things for the fear of not being a part of it. And the market's been going so gangbusters 
for so long that many people are investing in the market that hadn't in the past, or at least at higher rates or higher percentages of the overall net worth, for fear of losing out. And fortunately for them, it's worked out very, very well. But in the circles that I swim, which is in that very close to retirement and uh, retired category, you must have some of your money in fixed. You have to. Otherwise, you can't weather storms. Remember, this income uh, that you're deriving off of your assets, Social Security, et cetera, has to last the rest of your life. You need to be able to weather storms. And fortunately for you, you really haven't had any storms. I mean, you had kind of a, uh, a passerby of a storm in the way of the COVID drop and then rally. But interest rates is typically a big driving force of how much money goes into fixed. Let me explain. Most people know they have to have a certain amount of money in fixed to be able to satisfy these uh, you know, storms. And by fixed, I mean the bond market or CDs or cash. Well, interest rates are so low that that just simply isn't an option. I mean, when you have interest rates at 1% and you're 50-50 in stocks and 50% in bonds and your bonds are only earning or your, your CDs are only earning 1%, that doesn't get you from A to B. So I think, you know, what we need to start doing is we can't change the interest rate environment, but we can change things that we do in planning. Um, when do we take Social Security? When you delay your Social Security, there's a significant increase to your Social Security income down the line. So does that make sense? Oftentimes that isn't looked at. I think we need to start taking a very close look at that. Something we do in my office all the time, but gets overlooked quite often uh, by people in general. Secondly would be, how do we improve the return of our portfolio while still reducing risk? And I think now is a tremendous time to start taking a look at annuities, particularly fixed annuities, to do that. Fixed annuities historically have always earned a higher interest rate than what you can get out in the CD slash bank market. Um, we know we need fixed, but the CD slash bank market isn't going to do it. So we have to start looking at other categories. Um, and then the big challenge uh, for everybody, and, and this isn't 2021, this started a long time ago, is how do we address longevity? People are living longer, interest rates are lower. How do we address that fact? We need the money to last a really long time, much longer than we had in the past. So that also entails planning for longevity, safety, guaranteed income streams that adjust for inflation, et cetera. So uh, a very long-winded answer, I think, uh, Diane, on a, on a question of what do we need to do differently? We better come up with a solution for low interest rates and increasing longevity in a time where it looks like volatility might be right around the corner because we've had it so good for so long. What about people's fears with covid can you alleviate a little bit about that? Or can we use this experience to stress the importance of saving more? Yeah, if there's one thing I've learned from COVID, it's that I don't have the slightest idea uh, what's going to happen when. You know, I think we've all been through the, uh, at least with my kids as a perfect example, you know, we go from hybrid learning to uh, totally at home to back to full time to hybrid to et cetera. And it's all based upon, you know, the swing of a pendulum that we call COVID and whether or not the country shuts down or not. I mean, these are all things that we don't really know the answer to. But what we do know from experiencing COVID is a lot can change very, very quickly. Uh, if you would have told me five years ago that in five years we would be dealing with something where the government literally was able to shut down people's businesses single-handedly, just halt the economy to a stall, then decide which businesses could be open, tell kids they can't go to school, uh, these were all things that nobody would have forecasted. In, in our world, we call them black swans, things that there's no possible way you could have predicted that adversely affect the market. I can't think of a clearer example of a black swan than COVID. 
I think what it taught us, Diane, is that we better have more reserves than we had been playing with prior to that. So bolstering your emergency fund as we enter into 2021, I think would be very sound and prudent advice. One other thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of COVID, are most of your clients, are they used to it in terms of life is settling in with COVID or do you find people still apprehensive? Uh, I would say when it comes to meeting in my office, which I'm more than willing to do, um, as long as we take the proper precautions, wear masks, et cetera, I certainly don't want to get anybody sick. But it seems to me that there's a huge dividing line, much like the political dividing line that we're encountering you know, as we're going into this long, drawn-out election process, is that half of the population seems to be, for many reasons, um, seems to be very comfortable um, or fearful, one or the other, of leaving their house and doing anything face-to-face at this point. So uh, half the people just simply will not get together uh, in my office. The other half of the people uh, absolutely want to get together in my office. They seem uh, that they're eager to get out and get on with their lives. But I think ultimately people are settling in uh, to this, Diane, and that is, you know, whatever their whatever angle they want to take on COVID, they've become accustomed to that angle, and it seems to be the norm. There's a lot of things that I think this will impact in the long run uh, that we've yet to see. Uh, for example, commercial real estate, I think, is uh, one area that has not quite played out yet. I, I think you're going to find that many businesses will not go back to brick and mortar. They will stay remote. Uh, because it's a cost-saving measure, and it seems to be working for many businesses. So this was a, a forced test run, if you want to call it that. Uh, but it seems to me like people are becoming more comfortable with whatever their norm is. To schedule an appointment to go through the Aptis Blueprint process, the Aptis office number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Join Josh as he talks retirement with Bruce Hooley, Mondays at 6 on 98.9 The Answer. That's 6 p.m. Podcast at aptuswealth.com in case you missed that. More of the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show when we come back. We'll be back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer. To create a successful retirement plan in today's economy, it takes a customized, solutions-based approach. At Aptus Wealth Management, founder Josh Pick calls it the Aptus Blueprint, and it's focused on managing risk instead of chasing returns. If you're working with another advisor or simply want a second opinion, put his team to work for you. To schedule a complimentary consultation to learn more about the Aptus Blueprint process, contact Josh at 614-364-7300 or visit aptuswealth.com. There is no cost or obligation, but space is limited. To start your plan, call 614-364-7300. 7300 or visit aptuswealth.com. Thanks for listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan. To schedule your own planning session, whether it be in the office or virtual, to learn new strategies to manage risk, you can call Aptus at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. So Aptus is known for its retirement blueprint process. And Josh, during that process, you ask a lot of questions to learn about people's financial situations. But what are some of the questions or things that people should be asking asking you, the financial advisor? Well, first, I think, and we've talked about this many times uh, throughout the course of the show, is asking questions about the background 
and how the advisor operates is first and foremost. So number one, are you a broker? Or are you a fiduciary? Which I harp on this all the time, but I think it's very important. And uh, we're obviously a fiduciary, which means we have to do what's in your best interest, not simply place a product that might be um, you know, suitable for you in some capacity. So that's number one. Number two, um, I think asking the advisor their background, what uh, level of experience do you have? What education do you have? What designations do you have? How do they apply to me are very important. But then beyond that, and I think what you're probably asking about is what questions should they ask about their individual situation to make sure that we're uncovering everything? And the first question seems obvious and very easy, but it's one that isn't necessarily always asked. And that is, do I have enough money saved for retirement? And my follow-up question to that would be, um, when somebody asks me that, is how do you want to retire? So in meaning one, really what we're trying to uncover is how much have you saved, how much are you continuing to save, and what does retirement look like for you? Those are the questions that you need to get answered um, in meeting one. Now, we're not going to get necessarily the answer. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that you're in great shape and sure you're perfect. I mean, that requires a lot of math and calculation and planning, but that definitely needs to be addressed. So what does retirement look like for you? How much per month do you need in your checking account to make the wheels on the bus go round for the rest of your life adjusted for inflation? And then we can start to plan for taxes, et cetera. So if I was meeting with a financial planner, I would say, what is your background? How do you do business? And do I have, according to you, do I have enough to save for retirement? What the planner asks you after that is actually going to tell you a lot about them. If they say something like, well, yeah, you're good. They clearly are operating off of uh, shooting from the hip and perhaps trying to sell you a product and not taking you down a thorough planning process. If they answer that question with a, a list of questions, and that list of questions would be things like, well, how are you allocated? Um, how much money have you been saving? What does retirement look like for you? You know you're heading down a more appropriate path. But other things that I would want to get the answers to are make sure that the planning process that this particular advisor uh, is going to take me down uh, answers these questions. Is my money in the right places? Am I allocated appropriately for my age and for my goals, et cetera? Um, another thing that I would ask is how much do you believe I should have or will I have in guaranteed sources of income versus income that is subject to market volatility? And what I'm really asking there is, okay, great, you said I can retire potentially, but what is my glide path of retirement look like? How volatile is that road going to be? I want to make sure that when I reach retirement, I'm not worried about my portfolio. I'm worried about, you know, how much fun I'm going to have and where. That would be my concerns, not my portfolio. So what does your process look like there? What would be things that could derail my retirement? I.e., how are we going to address long-term care and health insurance costs? What are we going to do to address uh, my estate? Is my estate, according to you, set up okay? Because at some point, none of us get out of here alive. It's an inevitable fact. How do I pass this money to my kids or my beneficiaries, whomever they are, the most efficient way possible? If you're philanthropic, you know, what is the most efficient way to give back out of my portfolios? Should I do a Roth conversion? How are you going to manage my taxes? And that's a huge one, Diane, when it comes to retirement. So all of these questions are pointing towards how thorough of a process do you have as it addresses the retiree? So I don't want to necessarily holistically talk about how you're going to pick the best stocks. I want to know how you're going to manage risk, provide me with income, make sure that I pay as little as possible in taxes, 
that my my road to, uh, throughout retirement isn't too bumpy, uh, that when something, God forbid, happens to me from a purpose uh, a perspective of health or death, that everything's taken care of and that's not going to derail a spouse or, or beneficiaries, etc. I want to make sure that we turn over every stone and we don't leave any of them uh, to chance. That's the questions that you want to ask any financial advisor that you meet with in meeting one, just to find out about the process and who they are. And when someone comes and talks with you and you take them through the Aptus Retirement Blueprint process, let's go through that steps. I think this is a good time to do that. Sure. And I think all of these steps address what I just said about the questions that you should ask any financial planner or investment advisor or whatever that particular uh, person is calling themselves. Step one is we need to ask all the right questions. Uh, We call this the discovery phase. We want to discover everything about you. How much have you saved? Uh, What are your goals? What are some of your fears? What do you want to address through this process? Essentially, what are you trying to get out of this financial planning process? Um, That is meeting one. So it's simply a very uh, long conversation, learning as much as we can about you. And don't worry about remembering all the questions that that I mentioned. Obviously, those would be great to have on the tip of your tongue, but we'll go through it, I promise. Uh, Number two, we call the analysis phase. So we're simply going to tell you if you continue on the path that you're on right now, you don't change where you're invested, you have the same level of risk that you currently have, and you keep on saving what you're saving with the goals that you have, this is what your retirement picture looks like. In meeting two, we start to uncover what are some areas that we think could be improved and why that's important. And then meeting three, we call the blueprint. That's where we address all of those things that we uncovered could be a potential problem or a, or a speed bump on the road of retirement for you. And then meeting four, and not until meeting four, do we decide if this is a mutually beneficial relationship for both of us. Financial planning done right obviously takes time, and it's a very long-term relationship, one that we don't take lightly. We're going to be talking together for a really, really long time. We want to make sure that it's a good fit for both of us. Um, and then we call that the engagement. If we want to work together, that's when we start going through the the minutia of figuring out how we're going to transfer things over and et cetera, et cetera. And I just want to remind the listeners that uh, Aptis hosts Aptis Retirement Blueprint webinars. They're free webinars about every two weeks for people to learn about some of the key concepts of retirement planning, like when should I take my Social Security? How do I minimize taxes on my 401ks, IRAs? It is no cost or obligation. Just give Aptis a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Let's talk about IRS changes. IRS is reducing the minimum withdrawal amounts for 401k and IRA plans. How does that affect us, Josh? Well, there's a couple things that the IRS has already done. Um, If you were younger than 70 and a half in 2019, then your new minimum required distribution age is no longer 70 and a half. And just a refresher, minimum required distributions effectively state that at some point in the future, we're going to require that you start taking a certain amount of money out of your retirement qualified plans. So that's all kind of the alphabet soup, Diane, the 401k, the 403b, uh, IRAs, et cetera. You have been effectively deferring taxes on that money your entire life. You put the money in pre-tax, it's been growing tax deferred. The IRS now wants their money. So they set a deadline of beginning at 70 and a half, used to be the old deadline. You have to start taking out a percentage. Now, don't be too alarmed. That percentage isn't huge. There's about 3.6% at 70 and a half. If you weren't 70 and a half in 2019, for for everybody after that, your new uh, 70 and a half is 72. So you didn't have to start taking money until 72. 
Now, last year was kind of an anomaly, and with the CARES Act for COVID, everybody got a relief year. So nobody had to take that money in 2020. You could, you just didn't have to. You would say, why wouldn't I want to take it? Well, because you have to pay taxes on the distributions that you take. And now the, the other thing that happened as part of the CARES Act is the percentage that you have to take moving forward was reduced by between 6 and 7% effectively. So you have to take less money as a percentage. That doesn't mean that it used to be 3.6 and now it's negative, you know, 3 point whatever. It means that it went from, you know, 4%, let's call it, down 7% of 4%, whatever that is. So it wasn't reduced dramatically, but it is a significant reduction uh, when you're talking about forced distributions. Now, I do believe, Diane, that that number could change. There's been some talk about raising that hurdle even further to potentially 74, 75. It hasn't happened yet to my knowledge, but I'm, I'm hearing some rumblings and some different uh, uh, introductions in Congress that that might be the case. But let's work with what we have right now. Why are minimum required distributions even a problem to begin with? Well, a lot of things that you live on in retirement um, are affected by the level of income that you have. For example, and we'll take the low-hanging fruit here, Social Security. Social Security is taxed based upon your outside income. So if you live exclusively off of Social Security, you pay no income tax whatsoever at the federal level on Social Security. None. So you are living tax-free. If you have Roth IRA distributions plus Social Security, you pay no taxes on Social Security whatsoever. But as your outside income via IRA, traditional IRA, 401k, 403b, pensions, etc., starts raising your income, up to 85% of your Social Security can go back into the taxable column. So now that you know that, let's go back to minimum required distributions. You're living great. You're living on your Roth IRA. You're living on a modest pension and you have your social security and you're paying little to no taxes whatsoever. And then all of a sudden, minimum required distributions kick out. Not only do you have to pay taxes on the minimum required distribution, but that also caused potentially some of your social security to be taxed. So you got double whammied. You know, you say, well, I thought I was only gonna have to pay 12 or 22% in, on my social security. When in turn, now I have to pay, or on my, uh, my IRA distribution, when in turn it worked out to significantly more than that. Well, that was because your overall income went up and then the tax bracket affected that. So the planning course of action here, Diane, is how do we do potentially Roth IRA conversions to mitigate or minimize the impact uh, of taxes on us in the long run? And that's part of the planning process. Obviously, it's part of the blueprint, something we go through. Do Roth IRA conversions make sense for you? Um, how do we optimize our Social Security as a result of what I just said? In other words, does it make sense for us to live on our traditional IRAs for a period of time and let our Social Security grow and then start living off of that because of tax planning? Um, these are all questions that we'll answer, but they're very important questions that impact the viability and security of your long-term retirement plan and almost, for a lot of people, more importantly, reduce taxes because I have yet to meet uh, Democrat or Republican, it really doesn't matter. I don't, uh, you know, regardless of your background, whoever sits in front of me never says, I'd really like to not minimize the amount of taxes that I pay. <laughs> so that's always a goal. And it's something that's very important. And uh, that can be really screwed up via minimum required distributions if they're not addressed. 
Let me give everyone uh, your number, Josh. The Aptus Wealth Management office number is 614-364-7300, 614-364-7300. If you would like to schedule your own personalized planning session, give that number a call. The website is aptuswealth.com. Join Josh Mondays at 6 with Bruce Hooley on 98.9 The Answer for Money Mondays. We'll have more when we come back. We'll be back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer. Thanks for listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan. Stimulus checks are coming around again. So we'll talk, of, of course, about smart things that people can do with the, the $600 if they're not going to go to basic necessities. But I think the bigger question here, Josh, is are these stimulus checks detrimental to the economy in terms of who has to pay this back? Is $600 enough per person? Is it enough to actually stimulate anything? Well, this is a difficult question, and I have a very strong opinion on it. We'll just address it kind of head on. I think the government is faced with a very difficult challenge, and that is trying to act as though they're doing something to help a problem that arguably they caused. Uh, And by causing it, I mean they shut down the economy effectively. Now, time will tell whether that was a smart move. Obviously, COVID is a real disease. It's killed people. It's a a damaging thing. But um, whether the government handled it correctly or not is yet to be seen. Their solution to shutting down the economy is to provide uh, you know, PPP loans for some businesses. I am happy to see, by the way, Diane, and I'm going to get to the $600 question. The PPP loan initially, and for those of you who don't know it, businesses had some respite as well, where they could get payroll protection loans that were forgivable. So you could get money for free to pay your people as long as you promise not to lay them off. Now, the problem with the PPP loans is most, uh, not most, but a lot of companies that received them weren't doing any less business than they were doing before COVID started. In other words, let's say I'm an IT company, everybody works from home, we all still have a tremendous amount of business. Matter of fact, COVID boosted our business because everybody's working remotely and they need IT help. So our IT company has done really, really well. We apply for a PPP loan, let's say that maybe our our payroll is $200,000, we get a $200,000 loan, we pay for our payroll, and we never pay it back. It was free money, and we didn't really need it. We just raised our profit by 200000 On the new round, uh, and I'm sure everybody would agree that doesn't make sense, on the new round, there are criteria. We don't know what those criteria are yet, but there are going to be criteria that said you have to show some need for this money uh, via business this year versus last year or something along those lines. Well, similarly... If you look at the, the $600 stimulus check, I mean, who's it going to? Is it going only to people who have lost their jobs as a result of COVID? No, it's just going to whoever. Um, and often, you know, I work with a lot of retirees, obviously, Diane, and, and most of them are getting stimulus checks. And almost all of them, when they come in, they go, does this really make sense? And the answer is no, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to give people who are already retired, who have been unimpacted by covid uh, with the exception of maybe saving money because they're not going anywhere. Um, the economy's done very well. Retired people have money in the market, which has obviously hit all-time highs. It has not affected them. So I would have much preferred to see any stimulus paid out in the form of uh, criteria qualification. 
This is not saying that I am, uh, you know, immune or, or so stupid or naive to the fact that a lot of people are suffering and their jobs have been displaced as a result of COVID. And they should absolutely receive help from the same people who put them in the position to begin with. So I agree with stimulus to begin with. But this blanketed level of stimulus seems pretty naive to me. It seems like a, uh, a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. It seems like a, a way for us to say, look, we're helping. Here's some money. Shut up. Which is ridiculous and almost insulting, in my opinion. Now, that said, your second half of the question was, what is it going to do to the economy? How are we going to pay it back? Well, the hope with this stimulus is not only will people use it to improve their situation, but the people who uh, do not need the money for necessities will then turn around and pour that money back into the economy via purchasing goods, services, et cetera, which will be good for the economy. But And that's true. But the problem is, how are we paying for it? As a, as a country, we do not have the extra money to be giving people money via stimuluses. So the way that we're deriving that money is by effectively borrowing, or in our case, uh, having the, fre- the Fed print us money. So what does that mean in the long run? Well, ultimately, it should lead to inflation. Now, when that will occur, which is a question that's asked oftentimes to me, I don't know. Uh, whether or not the U.S. dollar will remain stronger than other countries' currencies so that we will not have a 100% blunt impact, you know, dollar for dollar of that inflation, I don't know. But what I do know is when you introduce more of something, it creates inflation, supply and demand, right? When we print more money, the dollars in everybody's hands are worth less money because we have to actually substantiate the value of that money through its purchasing power. And that purchasing power is going down. So my fear, Diane, long-winded answer, my fear is this. The same people who are receiving these stimulus checks because they're in a difficult spot, it is a Band-Aid for, for a small period of time, but if we do not figure out a way to reopen the economy, to boost jobs, increase GDP, create new things, to create new jobs that pay more money, those same people, if they go back to the same jobs they had before, making the same amount of money, they are not actually making the same amount of money five years from now. They're making less money because the dollar is not worth as much as it was. So the hope here is that we figure out a way as a country to boost growth, increase our domestic product, come up with new innovations to actually grow faster than the dollar erodes, which I think is a dangerous game to play. So while I think it's necessary, Diane, I am very concerned about its impact on the same people that it's designed to help. Understood. When in history has this happened in terms of inflation? I mean, can we point to the 80s? Is that a time that... Oh, yeah. I mean, the 80s. Yeah, for sure. The 80s is is a great example of inflation. Um, And, you know, you being in the real estate market, I'll ask you a question. If interest rates on home mortgages went back to 18% like they did in the 80s, what would be the impact of home values almost immediately? Yeah, they would come down. They would come down dramatically. Yeah, Yeah, so people would get hurt in the way of equity. Now, that's a very direct, easy answer. But if you look back in the 80s, um, you know, inflation was was skyrocketing, but they were raising interest rates at the same, same time. Well, since it, you know we've really, really gone off of, uh, gone directly towards a fiat currency, since we've done that, and since we've got computers, that's a big difference between the 80s and today, as we have financial engineering through computers, we have the ability now to really, I don't want to say hide a lot of these things, but to engineer them to the point where they seem almost invisible. So 
my concern would be that unlike the 80s, which I actually really liked Volcker, who was the uh, Fed president back then, unlike then, what we could potentially have would be a period of inflation with still having low interest rates. Well, if you have inflation and low interest rates, you can't keep up with the inflation because the interest rates are so low. In the 80s, while inflation was really high, you could also get a CD paying 18%. So the inflation was very obvious, but you could combat inflation if you had income to do it. So there's, there's some concerns moving forward as to whether or not it's going to play out the same way as, say, the 80s. And I don't think it will. But we're really getting off topic from financial planning, I believe, and getting into, you know, what do I think uh, you should be concerned about? Well, I think as you, you – know, my goal in the show, obviously, is to always provide information that can help people. And here's the information that I think you can take away from what I just said that can help you. One, be better prepared for emergencies via an emergency fund. Two, be concerned and build a plan around the potential of inflation, the potential of longevity, but also the potential of low interest rates. These are things that we can help you with. But make sure you've addressed all of those things, or you could – you know, I think Warren Buffett said it first – uh, you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. Well, if you're swimming naked right now, not addressing those things and getting away with it, good for you. But that might not always be the case. So make sure you're addressing all areas of financial planning, not just trying to pick who the next Tesla is and, and hoping that uh, you go up 600% this year like you know Apple did. Speaking of the stock market, okay. any ideas you know for 2021? And I know you don't have a crystal ball, but are – we do for a correction. Are we? What's going to happen, Josh? What's going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right. I don't have a crystal ball, but I think that you know, let's address just some facts, and then I'll, I'll let everybody draw their own conclusions, and then I'll give you my opinion of what should be done. We're coming off the longest bull run in the history of the stock market. Interest rates are at the lowest they've ever been in the history of the United States. Um, we have again a polarizing changing of the guard who's talking or at least ran on a position of increasing regulation uh, via the Green New Deal and increasing the corporate tax rate, um, increasing personal tax rates on the highest uh, income earners. Now, while we could easily make arguments that say these all make sense, we can't argue the fact that they will have an impact. And that impact could absolutely result in a correction. Now, I think it's important to note what's the difference between a correction, recession, depression. A correction is when the market pulls back by greater than 20%, but rebounds relatively quickly. A recession is different, and that's when the market pulls back by greater than, uh, I can't remember if it's 20 or 30%, but the important uh, piece is that it holds for a period of greater than six months. And recessions happen all the time, Diane. Matter of fact, they happen you know, many times throughout just a year, you'll see the market pull back 10 or 20% and then rally back very quickly. These I would consider almost gyrations in the market. And it seems to me that most people can weather that storm if it ha happens for a short period of time. Now, corrections on the other hand, or, or I'm sorry, recessions on the other hand, when it holds for a long period of time, we actually know that that period of time ends up being a few years. Um, insert 2001, 2002, 2008, 2009, um, and then keep going back. Those seem to happen. It seems like one happens about every 10 years. And we haven't had one happen for far longer than 10 years. We're going on 12 years now, 13 years almost. So are we, quote, due? Potentially just by historical norms. But then add in the other issues in the fact that you have valuations of a lot of growth companies kind of getting into that catastrophic, crazy line region. And I think it's very possible that we could have a pretty significant pullback. Now, whether that happens in the next 
three months or three years, I don't know. But I think that we cannot let ourselves become complacent and get away from some of the principles that have worked for people uh, for a really long period of time with slight tweaking. Meaning, if you're retired, you certainly should not have 100% of your money in the stock market. If you're young, you certainly shouldn't have 100% of your money in fixed. There's logic to all of this. You should always try and minimize taxes. You should always be prepared for emergencies, et cetera. So the takeaway here is make sure that you're going back and setting yourself up in a position that allows you offense but also defense. And I think we've gotten away from that because things have got, been so good for so long. Stay with the plan. The number to call for Aptus Wealth Management is 614-364-7300, 614-364-7300. We know you love this show so much that you want more. You can get more every Monday at 6 p.m. for Money Mondays. On 98.9 The Answer, Josh joins Bruce Hooley each week to chat about retirement. You can hear that conversation as well at aptuswealth.com. When we come back, mistakes you and your spouse need to avoid when claiming Social Security. We'll be back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer. To create a successful retirement plan in today's economy, it takes a customized, solutions-based approach. At Aptus Wealth Management, founder Josh Pick calls it the Aptus Blueprint, and it's focused on managing risk instead of chasing returns. If you're working with another advisor or simply want a second opinion, put his team to work for you. To schedule a complimentary consultation to learn more about the Aptus Blueprint process, contact Josh at 614-364-7300 or visit aptuswealth.com. There is no cost or obligation, but space is limited. To start your plan, call 614-364-7300. 7300 or visit aptuswealth.com. Thanks for listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan. Social Security, Josh, what mistakes do you find that couples end up making when claiming Social Security? I think one, let's just talk about how typically the social security conversation goes. Uh, this is what I hear most oftentimes in my office. I'm planning on retiring at 65. She's planning on retiring at 64. Um, so I'm going to take mine at 65 and she's going to take hers at 64. And that's about the level of thought process that goes into claiming social security. So that's, that's mistake number one. And it's, it's, while it's a very common mistake and it seems logical enough, you know, Social Security is part of my retirement income, so I should start that when I retire. There is uh, either fortunately or unfortunately more thought that should go into that. Um, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that, Diane. Uh, one is everybody is entitled to the greater of 100% of their own benefit or 50% of their spouses. Um, now, that's up to a threshold. So meaning that while your Social Security benefit can grow all the way until you reach age 70, if you're collecting a spousal benefit, meaning let's say you weren't even entitled to a Social Security benefit on your own, it can't grow more than 50% of your spouse's benefit at full retirement age. So already I've thrown out two numbers at you, and, and I would assume you and everybody listening is probably scratching their head saying, what the heck did he just say? And I'll explain more that's going to cause you to say, what the heck did he just say? And I think the takeaway of all of this, while I try and hopefully logically explain a lot of the nuances of Social Security, is it's not as simple as you think. It's a government-derived program, so a lot of it doesn't necessarily on the surface make logical sense. But it's important that you understand how it works because it can make a significant impact on how much you collect for the remainder of your life. And when you think about payments for the remainder of your life, even a subtle adjustment of 10 or $15 a month 
can make a dramatic difference over the next 20 years. So one is making sure you take full advantage of not only your benefit, but the spousal benefit, or let's call it the impact of your collection on your spouse, not only when you're alive, but also when you pass away. Because what I said before is you're entitled to 100% of your own benefit or 50% of your spouse's while you're alive, whichever is greater. You're entitled to 100% of your own benefit or 100% of your spouse's benefit when they pass away. So you lose your own benefit potentially, but you can get a boost to what your spouse was collecting. So oftentimes it makes sense for one spouse to, col to collect a little bit later than initially anticipated because they're doing planning for the potential of uh, passing away and leaving a spouse on their own and their benefit will help that spouse uh, live a more comfortable life if they're not around. So there's a lot of kind of calculations that go into this. Most oftentimes, these calculations, by the way, if you kind of want to know what goes into it, it's not that much. It's what's your benefit, what's your spouse's benefit, uh, what is your life expectancy look like uh, and people go who knows you know I don't know when I'm gonna die well let's look at family history let's look at your health and come up with a logical conclusion on what you can kind of predict perhaps your uh, life expectancy will look like and then let's figure out a way to maximize how much you will get for the remainder of your life and then I think we had talked earlier about how a social security tax that's kind of a weird animal in that regard too and that social security to my knowledge is the only um, income that you receive that how much of the the income you receive is taxed not the percentage that you're taxed on it but how much of it in general is taxed is based upon your outside income so there's a lot of things that go into when should i calculate social security that problem is exacerbated by adding a spouse into the equation because now we have two variables working against one another or together uh, and then taxes on top of that and I, I did a calculation one time. I was part of the designing of a software that did all of this. And I want to say there was like, you know, 2,000 plus calculations on any one individual to determine the best time for them to collect Social Security. So obviously computers are our friend in this scenario, but you should do the investigating and you should run the calculating via a, a computer software program to find out what's best for you. Something we do uh, obviously as part of our blueprint process uh, with every client that comes in the door. But huge problem is don't just assume I'm going to collect the day I retire. That may be the worst possible scenario for you. doesn't mean I'm going to tell you to retire later, but it does mean that we might take income from a different source for a period of time or vice versa when you retire. At what age should people come to you and talk to you about the Social Security aspect of it? The sooner the better, but Social Security is a part of the planning process. So younger people, a lot of times, you know, by younger, I'm saying people in their 30s and 40s will oftentimes say, I want to do my financial plan, assuming I'm not going to receive any Social Security. If I get it, it's, uh, you know, it's a bonus. Um, I don't think that's necessarily entirely accurate. I think we'll all still be entitled to some sort of benefit. Um, and w that's a conversation for another day. But how much of it we include is, is an argument. I think once you get into that 60 category, late 50s, and retirement is, you know, five, 10 years away, we should really start to talk about what our plan is. Now, I had thought before that, you know, there could be some changes made to Social Security under the new administration. I don't know that the changes will be uh, as aggressive uh, necessarily, but we'll see how it all plays out. So you have to look at Social Security a year out, two years out, five years out, 10 years out, and, and make a plan for how are we going to include that and what impact does it have on the total scenario. And since we're talking about couples, what age should they be discussing when each other wants to retire or should retire? 
at least the day before they get married. Uh, no, I mean, I'm joking, but but honestly, I, I see a lot of problems. You know, one thing that's overlooked, they say divorce is caused, uh, you know, one of the number one reasons. Uh, we'll leave the second reason out, but the number one reason is money. So I think, you know, the sooner that we address all money situations or all, all money concerns in a relationship, the better. Uh, and I, I think people dating should wear their credit score on a T-shirt. I think that <laughs> that would be effective. It would be an interesting, maybe that's one of the, uh, what is it, the 28 ways of compatibility on eHarmony? Maybe that should be yeah, the 29th. I think so. Your credit score. Uh, y- you know, you're right. But I think it's sometimes astounding to me when people will sit in front of me and, and not have any clue what the other person's opinion of money is. And they've been married for 40 years. And by opinion of money, I mean, what do you want to do in your retirement? But also, what does retirement look like for you? What are your money goals in life? And as much as money could be arguably the root of all evil, it's a necessary evil that buys freedom and options. And I think that we should get on the same page with that in a relationship as quick as possible. So to answer your question, I don't, I don't really have a good answer. As soon as possible. Do it as quickly as possible. Let's have a conversation, an open conversation, where I'm oftentimes the mediator of that conversation. Um, oftentimes I hear, well, you're not a, he's not a marriage counselor. He's a, he's a finance guy. Well, sometimes... You have the to two be. do seem to overlap. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, when you have two polarizing opinions, you have to figure out some commonality and some common ground, which uh, I don't want to pat myself too hard on the back, but I feel like I'm pretty good at that at this point in my career. So we have those conversations as soon as we possibly can. I have uh, friends of mine. He is quite a bit older than her. And he was telling me, well, I'm going to retire. And, you know, she is going to she's going to work and take care of both of us. And she had no idea about his plan until they got retired. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then they had to have that conversation. So, yeah, it can be a little dicey. That's for sure. So the sooner it's the a better. Difficult converse- yeah, it's a difficult conversation to have after they've already put in their I'm leaving paperwork right, right. from their company. Exactly. Let's have it at least before then. As soon as possible. All right. You're listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan. To schedule your own planning session and to learn new strategies to manage risk, call Josh at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Let's talk about IRA conversions. It's the start of the year. Is it a good time to look at doing that? Always a good time. And here's why it's a good time. And first, let's go back. I know we've talked about it a lot, but what is a Roth IRA conversion? Traditional IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, all that alphabet soup stuff uh, is money that you put in pre-tax. So you get the benefit of saving more than you normally would be able to because you're not being taxed on those dollars going in. All of the gains inside of those investments grow tax deferred, meaning you don't pay taxes every single year. But then when you pull money out of those investments, they are taxable and they are also subject to minimum required distributions, which we've already ad nauseum talked about the impact that those can have. Roth IRAs, on the other hand, is money that you put in after tax, so you've already paid the taxes on it, but all the gains inside of it are tax-free. It's the single best line in the tax code for particularly younger people to save money on a tax-preferred basis. There's no better investment that I can think of on a tax-deferred basis, or at least that I know exists. Because if you're young and you're, let's say, 20 years old and you save 1000 bucks, that $1,000 at 7.2% rate of return is going to double, uh, by the time you reach 70, is going to double five times from 20 to 70. So that 1000 is going to turn into 2000 4000 8000 16000 32000 So you saved 1000 
and $31,000 worth of gains is completely tax-free when you withdraw it. It's also not subject to minimum required distributions and not taxable to your beneficiaries when you die. So most people say, well, I'd love to get into that. How do I do it? Well, it's through a process called a Roth conversion. And a Roth conversion is taking your traditional IRA assets, your traditional 401k assets, and converting them over to the tax status of a Roth IRA. Now, the downside to doing that is every dollar that you convert, you have to pay taxes on when you convert it. The benefit to it is all of that money forever moving forward, as long as you hold it in the Roth IRA for five years, is completely tax-free. Now, you say, is it a good time to do it? I have yet to meet anybody in my office over the last four years who thought that taxes were going to go down over the next 10 years. So if you believe tax rates are going to go up, and you're at a lower rate now, it certainly makes sense for you to convert as much as you can at the lower tax rate today and save yourself a higher tax rate tomorrow. Now the challenge is, how much should I do? Well, that becomes a question of logical planning and pain tolerance. And by pain tolerance, I mean, how much are you willing to pay in taxes today to save taxes tomorrow? And logical planning means, if you believe logically that you're going to be in the 12% bracket today that might be the 15 or 18% bracket tomorrow, certainly don't pay 32% in taxes today to save yourself 18% in taxes tomorrow, unless there's some other extenuating circumstance. The other thing that you need to be very concerned about is Medicare is taxed based upon the level of income that you have. And by taxed, I mean the amount that you pay into Medicare. So tax is probably the wrong word. Your actual premium payment for Medicare. If you exceed certain thresholds, the cost of your Medicare goes up. So you want to make sure that you don't do a conversion so high that not only are you paying more taxes that you needed to, not only are you potentially paying taxes on your Social Security that you didn't need to, but you're also paying higher Medicare. So we know all of these numbers. We do this planning all of the time. Uh, we'll help you through what makes logical sense for you while keeping under the thresholds of your Medicare premium payment and keeping within a reasonable tax bracket. But to answer your question, it is always, always a good idea to look at Roth conversions. The decision on whether or not you should do one should be based upon logical planning and not based upon somebody trying to sell you that if you work with me, we're gonna do this great Roth IRA conversion and it's gonna be awesome and you should do it. A Roth IRA and investment are two very different things. Roth IRA, is tax, Roth IRA conversion is tax planning, the investments you do with inside of it is a completely different conversation and they should be not simultaneously discussed. So we're gonna figure out, does a Roth conversion make sense to you or for you? And then in turn, what is the best investment to hold within that? And we do that every single year with every client we have. The number to call if you have questions is 614-364-7300, 614-364-7300. Mondays at six, join Josh as he talks to Bruce Hooley for Money Mondays on 98.9 The Answer. And you can hear that conversation as well at aptuswealth.com. Thank you everyone for joining us. We'll be here next week as well. We will talk to you then. You've been listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint radio show with host Josh Pick. Josh helps guide his clients through retirement by managing risk instead of chasing returns. He calls it a blueprint, and you can get started at no cost or obligation. Give the team at Aptus Wealth a call today to schedule your consultation at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300 or online at aptuswealth.com. That's A-P-T-U-S wealth.com. 
To learn strategies to manage risk in the new economy, join us again next weekend right here at 98.9 The Answer. Any comments regarding safe and secure investments and guaranteed income streams refer only to fixed insurance products. They do not refer in any way to securities or investment advisory products. Fixed insurance and annuity product guarantees are subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing company.